Thank you for listening to the Bible preaching ministry of Dr. Tim Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Hallelujah. God's been good. Amen. God's been so good. We've seen so many blessings of the church and victories for God's kingdom. And yet this year has not been without its heartaches. A few of our dear saints have gone to be with the Lord. Though we're happy for them, we're sad for us. Been a few bumps in the road here and there, but by God's grace, here we stand. Now next Sunday, we are going to be looking into the exciting book, of Revelation. And I am looking forward to that. Already been studying and praying and collecting information for several months now. But today we're going to have a one a standalone message, an ear, end of the year standalone message from the often overlooked book of the minor prophet Zechariah. And this is from a paraphrase that of a vision that God gave to Zechariah about the high priest by the name of Joshua. And what he told him was, get out of those dirty clothes. Get out of those dirty clothes. Joshua, you've got something different for your life. Now, the dirtiest I've ever been was in the summer of 2000. We had just gotten approval as a church to develop this campus. The expenses at our other location were mounting. It was late spring, early summer, and we desperately needed to get a start on the long process of leveling this wonderful God-given 12 acres if there was any hope of getting a foundation in before the winter rains. However, we had limited funds, as we have always seemed like, but by God's grace, we make it through. Certainly didn't have enough money to go and get a construction company to come in with all their earth-moving equipment. And since we were committed to doing it the Bible way, God's way, doing it without any debt, doing it debt-free, we had to think outside the box. And so we invented the first known to mankind bus grader. What we did is we took our church bus and after someone had dissed up the ground, we then pulled this big old log around. Brother Kerry and others pulled that log around for day after day. In addition to that, uh, we were gifted some, uh, from short-term use from a rental company, some equipment like a backhoe and other earth-moving things. Uh, the deal was, though, that uh, they would let us use it, but whenever they needed it, they would come pick it up at any time. If we were in the middle of doing something, they'd just come pick it up. So, which meant that if we were going to get anything done, we had to get on it 24 hours a day. And so we took long stints, moving all that dirt around. Here's one of them on a bobcat there. He's having fun. 
That was uh, 23 years ago, 22 years ago. Pushing dirt around, pulling dirt around. Now, if you know anything about the dirt in this area, as soon as you've run over it, it's dry. As soon as you've run over it a few times, it turns to this absolute dry powder, kind of like just uh, like a powdered sugar, only dark. Well, I will tell you, since we worked on those tractors 24 hours a day, and I was one of the operators, I had dirt everywhere. I had dust in my hair, what little there was. It was in my ears. I had dirt clouds coming out of my nose. It was in my mouth. It was in my teeth. I was such a dirty fellow. I, you, know, I you couldn't even recognize me. Well, when I came home, I walked in and my wife, Lynette, took one look at me and she said, take those dirty clothes off. Don't you come in this house with those clothes on. And so there I was, the pastor, outside, stripped down, and no, just all covered in dust. Now, that's the message this morning. We stand before an open door. That open door is 2024. My friend, we cannot go in that door with dirty clothes on. We must go in with a clean set of clothes. Any soiled clothes must be set aside. Today, we're going to look at a powerful but little-known story, an Old Testament character by the name of Joshua, not the one we normally talk about. Go to Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 4, if you'll be finding that, please, or you can just see up here on the screen a vision from the Holy Spirit to Zechariah. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from me. Take those dirty clothes off, Joshua. And he said unto him, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with the change of garments. Now let me say, as you well know, we live in a country, we live in a time when it is the blame game, where it seems like that anything that's bad is somebody else's fault. And I know in my human nature, I'm certainly guilty of the same thing. But it seems like, honestly, it's become an obsession with today's media, business world, academia, even the political world for sure. Now I don't want to get too political here, but... You know what I mean. Mainstream media hates number 45, our former president, and pretty much anybody associated with him. And I have noticed that it is the common thought that anything negative, whether real or not real, is his fault. Shootings in America, inflation, COVID, drought, Ukraine, the chaos at our southern border, Somehow, somehow, number 45 is responsible. It's called the blame game. Now, the fact of the matter is, it is human nature for us not to take responsibility for our own shortcomings. But here's today's message. Every road has two ditches. I mean, there is that ditch where people fall into the blame game. But the devil doesn't care which ditch we fall in, whether it's on the right or the left. As long as we stay off of God's highway of holiness. And here's the other side of the road. The other side of the road is a guilt trap. That is, not shoving the blame off on somebody else, 
but caught in an endless sense of regret, a prison of remorse, just that ghost of guilt that constantly, real or even false, that just weighs us down. The late Adrian Rogers, pastor of Bellevue Baptist in Memphis, Tennessee, told of a legend that says that after Pontius Pilate had falsely accused Jesus Christ and found him guilty and worthy of crucifixion, he tried to wash his lily-white but sin-stained hands in a basin. And then he went back to Rome. But on his way, he went through Switzerland, which is a place outside of what is now called Lucerne. He went up to a tall mountain, and there, filled with grief and remorse, he jumped from that mountain to his death. Now, if you go to Lucerne, Switzerland today, you will find that mountain. It is called Mount Palatus. It is named for that same prefect, the governor of Judea, Pilate. Now, legend says that up there on that mountain, he died. I don't know if that is true or not. But they say that if you go there in a certain times of the year, you will hear Pilate moaning and groaning as though he is trying to wash his hands of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Well, the fact of the matter is, folks, we are, all of us, often haunted by a sense of our own regret and things that we have done in our life. And there are some in this congregation here this morning some that are watching online today or others who will be listening by our podcast. Wherever you are, you are, sh- you are shackled and chained, whether you're young or old or male or female, bound by debilitating feelings of inadequacy and inferiority and shortcoming and defectiveness, the sense of flaws and faults. You know Americans are a strange people. We really are. Sadly, it seems like it's kind of rolling over into the modern church. We have worked so hard to get rid of sin. In fact, we don't even like saying the word in the public anymore. We've relabeled sin. We call it personal choices. Others say it's just your nature. You were born that way. Or others say we are victims of oppression. We have gotten rid of the concept of sin, at least in our heads. But my friend, you cannot get rid of guilt and regret that way. And with all of that in mind today, we are going to be dealing biblically with any negative baggage that might weigh you down and mess up this new year. We can't go into this new year with any baggage, any dirty clothes. Blame. The man blamed the woman. The woman blamed the serpent. And the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. It is time to get past the shame and the blame. It is time to quit making excuses and get in the game. We're going to do our best today to ask God to help us just shut the door on 2023, leave behind all the shame and the guilt, and let's go into 2024 with new clothes on. Let's bow for prayer. Father, thank you for this great truth. And Lord, I just thank you, Holy Spirit, for the confirmation, even with the beautiful choruses and hymns that were chosen for this day. Lord, just a sense that this is exactly the message. 
Now I pray that, Lord, everyone will hear it. And Holy Spirit, again, I ask that you will help me to speak it and to preach it. And Lord, I thank you for what you'll give us today. Change us. Lord, at the end of this message, I pray that each one of us won't just consider it. We will choose to have a new walk. In Jesus' name. Now, if there's anything that the Bible promises from Genesis through Revelation, it's this. That God has a marvelous future for His people. I'm not only referring to His people in the big sense, but His chosen people, Israel. In reality, they are truly privileged. Now, there is no book in the Old Testament that makes that thought any more clear than the little-known book of Zechariah. In the book of Zechariah, God gave eight visions to this pastor, to this prophet, to this man of God. Beginning in chapter 1 and verse 7, all eight of them, when you look at them, deal with God's chosen people, Israel's restoration back to a land where they are today. Actually, it, it's bigger than the little strip of land that's there today. When you look through the book of Zechariah, you get a millennial look at the nation of Israel. Also, you get a historical look. Many of the things in this book talk about what was going on in that particular day. But very clearly, the language is so big and the thoughts are so amazing that it's much bigger than just any local thing that was going on. And so we get a practical view, a spiritual view. And that's our focus today. We're in Zechariah chapter 3, verse number 1. This is the fourth of those eight visions that the Holy Spirit gave. And so let's read these verses together and uh, we'll get through them and Ask God's help as we do so. All right. Verse number one. Let's read it out loud together, would you? All right. And he shewed me, Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that had chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this the brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And he answered and spake unto those that were before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused an iniquity to pass from them, and I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. Israel was in captivity, Babylonian captivity. Their efforts to rebuild the temple and rebuild their country was coming along, but there wasn't much progress. The people were discouraged. God came along and told them, just so you know, here's the promise. You're going to get back to your homeland. You're going to be free. You're going to have a place there to call home. Your enemies will be judged. But there seemed to be a lingering question on many people's minds. Then that was this. Well, that's all well and good, but what about the problems with our country? What about the sin in our country and in our nation? Well, this 
fourth vision answers that question. God said, I am going to transform a nation from sinfulness to holiness. And this is what allows God to do so. He talks about Joshua, the high priest. Now, this is not Joshua that led them into the promised land. This is a different Joshua. Joshua was a common name in the land of Israel. He, this particular Joshua is also mentioned in Haggai chapter 1, verse 1, and Ezra chapter 5 and verse 2. Now, when we talk about Joshua here, we need to know that he represents something more than just Joshua. He was also a symbol. He was a symbol for Israel. The high priest has always been a representative of the nation. For example, on the Day of Atonement, that yearly time when they would go in and atone for the sins of his nation, they would represent the entire nation. And what happened to him is what would happen to the nation. And so here we have the high priest symbolizing Israel stand before the angel of the Lord, verse number 1. Now who is this angel of the Lord or of Jehovah? Well, it is none other than Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. In verse number 2, he is in fact called just simply the Lord, Jehovah. And so this is God. This is Jesus that is standing here next to the high priest. We know that he is in fact deity because in verse number 4, he is involved in forgiving sin. The people are encouraged because here is the Messiah. Here is the angel of the Lord, here is Jehovah standing with them. It's always a blessing to know you got God beside you. But not only is God there, we find Satan standing at his right hand. Satan. Now, Satan, the word means adversary. Scholars actually say that there's a little uh, participle, uh, an article, excuse me, before adversary, and it is the adversary. And uh, that's a good thing to remember that ultimately the real adversary is always the devil. So Satan's up there. We sometimes think that Satan is in hell. No, Satan is not in hell, trust me. He is walking around this earth and he is actually up and back and forth into heaven. And he is saying to God this. He is saying, why are you even giving any time to these people? Look how filthy they are. Look how terrible these people are. Always accusing, that's his name, the accuser. And so the enemy stands, he's proclaiming to God, Israel is unworthy of your love and unworthy of your forgiveness. And this Joshua, who he's referring to, he is a terrible person. Remember now, the Bible says that there's a coming a day when we will be kings and priests unto the Lord. And so this is us. This high priest Joshua is Israel. But this high priest is also us. We are priests unto the Lord. Now, something's got to give here. This is a tense moment. I mean, Israel, Joshua, ourselves, either we're going to be cast off or somehow we're going to be forgiven. We're going to be able to have this promise that God has given. And so there are three facts in these four verses. And I pray that God will etch them into your mind. And he will just place them in your consciousness as we start this new year. First of all, I see a vicious accusation. This is a heavenly courtroom. 
God in his holiness is the chief justice of a heavenly supreme court. He is there. He is the chairman of that supreme court. He is on his throne. Verse number one, and he showed me Joshua, the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand. Problem is, however, Joshua has some serious issues. Look at verse 3. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments, and he stood there in heaven with these filthy garments. It's a strange scene. The high priest, which always wore beautiful uh, clothing, was not. In fact, he was clothed in this linen-stained garment. And just to show you how filthy these were, the word here, you can go and look it up yourself. It's a verb. It means to come forth or to go forth. It's actually speaking about human waste that comes forth from the body. And so what we have here is the high priest covered in the excrement of a human. He is stinky. He is terrible looking. What in the world is a high priest doing like that? He is representative of the sins of Israel. I mean, Satan wasn't wrong when he was saying Israel was sinful. It was sinful. And we are sinful. I mean, Satan's not wrong when he says that we're sinful. By the way, a reminder just how God sees our sin. It is true. It is just filthy and stinky. Now, and the fact that the high priest never says a word in defense shows that he's in total agreement. He knows it. Guilty as charged. Satan then feels very secure in his accusations. And he is the accuser. It is said that Martin Luther, the great reformer, had a dream. He stood on judgment day before God himself, and Satan was accusing him. Satan was opening up book after book of accusations one by one, boldly pointing to failure after failure after sin. And as the proceedings went on, Martin Luther's heart sank in despair. And then he remembered something. Turning to Satan, he said, there's one entry I don't see that you've made, Satan. And the devil said, what is that? And Martin Luther answered, it is this, Christ died for my sin. And that is exactly what's going on here, that Satan is accusing. But thank God there's going to be something else that's going to come along. This is a personal attack. And so he is pointing out all the sins of Joshua. He says to God, Satan does, on the basis of your so-called holiness, you're so great, you're so pure, how can you bless this high priest? Look at him. Look at how he looks. He's so filled with sin and terrible things. He's got a good case. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul said in the New Testament about each of us. Romans chapter 3 and verse 19. Now we know whatsoever thing the law says. It says to them that every mouth will be stopped and all the world becomes guilty before God. What was Paul saying? He's saying, you know what? The best thing that any of us could do is just shut up and plead guilty. All the world is guilty before God. Now, that's Bible doctrine, friends. And today, we don't like to discuss the sinfulness of society too much. 
Bible-believing evangelicals are accused of marginalizing people because they say that this is sin or being hateful. They're being judgmental because of all the health care they're trying to provide for women, otherwise called abortion. Or that we're being unloving or uncaring to the LGBTQ because how could we do that? They're born this way. <laughs> right, just like alcoholism is a disease. You say, Pastor, are you saying that these people are sinners? Yes. But here's what also what I'm saying. We are all sinners, each one of us. You'd say, well, then what is guilt? Now, if I were to ask the average person, what is guilt? They would say, well, I guess it's a feeling you get when you do something wrong. Others in today's world might say, well, it's something that you feel when you supposedly do something wrong. So let's clarify what guilt is. Let me give you four thoughts here this morning. First of all, the difference between guilt and guilt feelings. There is a big difference between guilt and guilt feelings. And most society doesn't know that difference. Not too long ago, I was in our little dressing closet, a dressing room there. And as you know, I'm an avid golfer and Golfers have these little ball markers. Well, I had a metal ball marker, and on one side it's smooth, and uh, you can see it when you're looking down on the green. On the other side, it has a metal pin sticking up. Unknown to me, that had fallen on the ground, pin side up. I stepped on it. I felt guilt in my foot. It went up my foot, and it went up my leg, it went up my body. It went to my head. It went to my mouth. It went to my eyes. I started crying. I want to tell you that thing hurt like the dickens. Now, the poke was in my foot, but I felt it everywhere. You see, guilt is like that. Guilt is a transgression of the law of God, but oftentimes we deal with it or we feel it in other places. And so oftentimes people will try to deal with the feelings of guilt rather than the actual guilt. Rather than just simply taking the pin out and dealing with the guilt, they deal with the feelings of the guilt. They say, oh, you're hurting? <laughs> take a pill. Maybe we should just take the pin out of the foot. Oh, you're not feeling well? What you need is therapy. You need somebody to talk to you. Or others will say, you don't, you're really not hurting. You're not sinning. It's because you've had intolerant parents. Or they will say, you are following these 1,700 uh, morals of another generation. Ah, what you need is affirmation, and we need to give care to you. God deniers and humanists would say to me, you don't have a pin in your foot. You'll feel better if you just simply take these things. But friends, that's a false idea. If you deal with guilt correctly, you deal with the pin in the foot. So when Simon says, well, I feel guilty, well, guess what? Here's a novel idea. Maybe they really are. Maybe we really are guilty if we feel guilt and shame. So there's a difference between guilt and guilt feelings. Number two, there's a difference between guilt and regret. Now, I suppose everybody experiences a certain amount of shame and regret over sins they've committed in the past. But 
And can you imagine, for example, the, the feeling of regret that Adam and Eve must have had? They lived for 930 years, Adam did, 930 years. And so all hundreds of years he lived with the sense that it was his sin that blew it. Just think of all the things that he had to realize. But thankfully, God had a plan, and God is willing to redeem mankind even though they had sinned. And so I'm sure that God told Adam, I, I get it, I feel your regret with you, but you need to know that I'm redeemed the world. And so in that regard, then Adam just needed to put it behind him. Now, we can live our whole life just filled with this debilitating regret for something we really did, or we can just say, you know what, I'm gonna, I've just got to put it behind me. And why has Apostle Paul said that to the church at Philippi? Here's what he said in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 13. He said, here's the thing that I do. I forget the things which are behind. I'm not saying that I didn't do wrong. I'm not saying that I'm just saying I'm not a sinner. I'm just saying I'm going to forget it. And I'm going to reach forward to the things which are before. Now, the word forgetting doesn't mean to you never remember it again. It just means refusing to focus on it. It, I think, means similar to what the great English Christian apologist and writer and poet C.S. Lewis said. He said, getting over a painful experience or regret is much like crossing monkey bars. You have to let go at some point to move forward. Forward by faith. Now, really, the way that it should work is we should always keep a sanctified hall of shame mean, in the back of our mind, we remember what we did, sanctify it, put it under the grace of God, but remember, don't forget so that we somehow get proud, never forget where we came from. It's kind of like what centenarian Moses said to his people, his very last words before they went into the promised land, Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 7. It seems counterintuitive to what Paul said, but actually it works together. Here, Moses said, remember your sin. <laughs> Paul said, forget your sin. Well, what he's meaning is, what Moses is meaning, remember and forget not how you provoked the Lord. We should remember what we did. We should realize we were guilty. But we should not become obsessed with it and overwhelmed with it. Like they say, a bird may land on your head, but just don't let him nest there. I know it happened, but I'm not going to just let that be my focus. And so there's a difference between guilt and guilt feelings. There's a difference between guilt and regret. And number three, there's a difference between true guilt and false guilt. Now, sometimes you can think you're still guilty even after you've confessed it to God. That's the human nature in us. We've given it to the Lord. We really repented. We say, Lord, I'm so sorry. I was wrong. And yet we still feel guilty about what we did. But the fact of the matter is, friends, once you've given it to God and you're still haunted by those feelings of guilt, then we kind of, if we're not careful, we're going to move into unbelief that God's blood isn't powerful enough. No, remember, if you've given it to the Lord, then it's done. Sometimes you can think you're guilty when actually you're not guilty at all. For example, little children, 
or maybe a precious wife or sometimes even husbands, I guess. But they go around feeling guilty even though they have been the ones that have been abused. Precious little children grow up feeling so dirty and abused and feeling like somehow they caused it. Or other times, mom and dad will get a divorce and the children will feel terrible as somehow it was their fault. My friend, these are all false gifts, not true guilt at all. Other times, it's just unwise choices we made. I bought a car when I shouldn't have. It put me under financially when a bad time came along. I wasn't able to pay it. I bought this terrible house in a terrible place. It was a lemon or whatever. It's not guilt at all. It's just humanity. It's just something that we made a mistake. We can't see every, we don't have crystal balls, you know. And so it's not true guilt because real guilt is a transgression of God's law. And the only way that it can be dealt with is by putting it under the blood of Christ. My friend, real guilt causes anxiety and depression and physical complications and feelings of condemnation. Guilt is to the soul what sand is to machinery. It just gums it all up. Now, some people try to deal with guilt. Some go to therapy. And there's Christian therapists out there and psychologists. And then we respect them and we appreciate their learning and their uh, kindness for people. But you listen to me. Listen closely this morning. There is not one therapist who can truly deal with anybody's guilt or shame or regret unless they point them to Jesus Christ. That is the answer. Any therapist who doesn't point someone to the Bible or to church or to Jesus, that person doesn't know what they're talking about. And then, of course, there's worldly therapy, which I'm telling you what, it is terrible. They will tell you, well, the reason you're guilty is because you go to church. And they're so repressive over there. They're saying all those bad things. And then, of course, there are millions of people who do self-therapy. They self-medicate. Alcohol, drugs. One man asked, will drinking alcohol help me to do a better job? <laughs> a wise person said, no. It'll just help you feel less bad about doing a bad job. And so here is Joshua, the high priest. He has filthy garments. He's being accused by Satan, and that's what he does. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, he's the accuser of the brethren. First he excuses you for your sin, and then he accuses you. Bible teacher Warren Wiersbe said, before you sin, Satan whispers, you can get away with it. You can get away with it. And then after you sin, he shouts, you will never get away with it clarifying guilt. There is a difference between guilt and guilt feelings. There's a difference between guilt and regret. There's a difference between guilt and false guilt. And then there's a difference between guilt and condemnation. There's a difference between Holy Spirit conviction and satanic accusation. Now Satan accuses to make you despair. The Holy Spirit convicts to draw you to Christ to forgiveness and to freedom. The classic example is that of Judas and Simon Peter. Now listen, both had the same good master. Both heard the same words. Both had the same sense of feelings that they felt bad. But in one case, it was condemnation, and in the other case, it was conviction. It had nothing to do with the seed all to do with the soil. 
The fact wasn't that Jesus said something wrong. It was their own heart. Why did Judas go out, take a rope, put it around his neck, step off a cliff, and kill himself? My friend, he did that because he was lost. He condemned himself. But in Peter's case, he took the feelings that he had and was convicted and wept bitterly. But he repented. And the Bible says God used him in such a mighty and great way. He came and he did a great job for the Lord. That's why 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10 says, Godly sorrow works repentance. That's a good sorrow. But the sorrow of the world, that's condemnation that we put on ourselves, that works death. And so when you give your guilt to the Lord, then you can be free of it. But the kind of guilt that we don't give to the Lord and we're proud of, that's the kind that lingers over us. A vicious accusation. Number two now, a victorious satisfaction. Notice our Savior's advocacy in this verse. Verse number two, we're back in Zechariah 3. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem. Rebuke thee. Is not this, Joshua, a brand plucked out of the fire? We're in the courtroom. And we find the Lord, Jehovah, the angel of the Lord, saying, This man, Joshua, has been plucked out of the fire. By the way, that's a good reminder. Each of us are burning. You'd say, well, I didn't do anything. Folks, we are all sinners. We are sinners by birth. We are sinners by choice. We are all burning in the fire. And unless God plucks us out, we are going to be burned up. But when we get saved, we become plucked out of the fire. I was burning until Jesus came along and plucked me out of the fire. Here he is, old Joshua, filled with all those stained clothes, and then the Lord comes along, and it says to Satan, the Lord rebuked thee. Who is this that is speaking? It is Jesus. First John chapter 1, 2, verse 1 says, if any man sin, we have an advocate. Yes, we have an adversary, Satan, but thank God we have an advocate, Jesus Christ. And then it says in verse number 2 of First Peter, or excuse me, First John 2, it says, not only do we have an advocate, but he is the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins. There is somebody who is worthy to plead our case. We each of us have an eternal defense attorney. He steps up to the bench, our attorney, and says, Father God, I know that this man is guilty, but I have atoned for these sins. They have been paid for. And I present as evidence the scars in my hands. You know, each year we have these wonderful Easter dramas, and I hope that you'll become involved. It's so amazing. But often they will say the words of Christ on the cross, it is finished. Now what does that word mean, it is finished? It means that everything that is necessary for sin to be eradicated has taken care of. Hallelujah. Our work of our Savior is a finished work. In fact, the finishing of that even continues on. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25. He is now, even now, ever living 
to make intercession with us. Well, when the adversary says he is guilty, Jesus said, yes, but I am his satisfaction. Then look at verse number two. It says, the Lord rebuked thee. Why? Because I have chosen Jerusalem. Now, that's a very important point right there. I have chosen God's person. We have been chosen by God. Joshua is chosen and redeemed. Now, what does it mean to be chosen? It means to be one of God's elect. You'd say, what does it mean to be one of God's elect? It means to be called by God. You'd say, well, who are the called? The people who pick up the phone and answer when God calls. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10 says, Wherefore, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and your election sure. The choosing of God and the election of God isn't something that he does, arbitrary to what you do. His foreknowledge knows that you are choosing him. And so when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and his offer of salvation, we are chosen then. Now we're able to say no if we don't want it, but God has chosen us for that thing. Friend, that is an amazing thing to know that nobody can lay anything to our elect because we have had our sins satisfied by Jesus Christ. We're part of his chosen. And then finally, number three, not only a vicious accusation and a victorious satisfaction, thank God Jesus paid it all, but number three, a victorious preparation, a vicarious, excuse me, preparation. Satan is rebuked. Jerusalem, Joshua, Israel, us, we are released and restored. Now Joshua is given a new change of clothing. Verse number three, he's clothed with filthy garments. And verse number four, take away those filthy garments. And then it says at the last part of that, I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. So the angels take this excrement stained linen cloth from the high priest, take it off of him, and in place of that, they give him all these wonderful clothing. You'd say, well, how can God do that? Because... Jesus took all of our sin. That's grace. That's mercy. And God said, I will clothe thee with a new raiment. Actually, if you read that phrase, it means festival garments. It's the same as it talks about in Exodus 28 and Leviticus 8. If you've ever read anything about the garments of the high priest, they're amazing. Beautiful blue and purple and scarlet cloth, onyx stones, engraved with the 12 tribes of Israel, precious stones, a turban-like hat with a gold plate on it, holiness unto the Lord. And it says, he stood before the angel, clothed in the righteousness that God has given him. Folks, let's get rid of that old dirty clothes, the sin, the guilt, the regret, the shame, and put on the clothes that Christ has given because of his grace. How can we do that? Because God has taken care of our sins. Very quickly now, in the few moments we have left, let me give you six things that God does with the sins of his people. I was talking with my dear son-in-law, a youth pastor here at our church, John Ridge, and he was saying when he was a teenager, he was just inundated by these feelings of inadequacy and sense that maybe he was lost. But when he got his eternal security settled, 
it was just the amazing uh, security that came, and it really propelled him for the rest of his life. And here's what the Bible says about our sins. Number one, he removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. That's what he does with our sin. Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west. Look out to the horizon. Look as far as you can see. You will never see your sins. Once you have been covered by the blood of Christ, you'll never see your sins again. If they were north and south, those have poles. You might meet, but never east and west because of the finished work of Jesus. Number two, he threads them under his feet. Micah 7, verse 19. It says he will subdue our iniquities. The word subdue means to thread down, to walk over, to grind into the dust. Our sin has no power, authority over us because they've been ground into the dirt. That's what Romans 6.14 says. No sin shall have dominion over you because we have been set free. And then number three, he cast them into the depths of the sea. Same verse, 7.19 of the book of Micah. Cast into the deepest sea and put the no fishing sign there, as one pastor said. The Marianas Trench and off of the Pacific Ocean is almost 40,000 feet deep. Imagine all of our sins are put down there and even further. And they are suffocated without any air. Thank God for that. Number four, he casts them behind his back. Isaiah 38, verse 17. Thou hast cast all my sins behind his back. In love, he has thrown them behind us like you're throwing peanuts at a game or something. I've, they're behind, and thank God, the book of James says he never turns around. There's no shadow of turning with God because he's always light. There can be no shadow. Number five, he wipes them out like a disappearing cloud. Isaiah 43 and verse 25, he blots out our transgression like my own sake. Gone, like a little puff of cloud that in the morning uh, uh, dawn, and then as soon as the sun comes, it's gone. I mean, where'd the clouds go? A beautiful day. And then finally, he remembers our sin no more. Jeremiah 31 and verse 34, I will remember their, in, their sin no more. You'd say, well, wait a second. God is omniscient. How could he forget our sins? Well, yes, he knows everything, but he can choose not to remember something. And that's exactly what it's done. My wife met me at the back door. She took one look at me with all those dirty clothes on and said, you are not coming in this house with those dirty clothes on. My friends, we are at the door of a new year. And as brands plucked from the fire, let's not go into this new year with any guilt, any regret, any shame. Let go. Jonathan Edwards, the reformer, said, at the new year, resolution one. I will live for God. Resolution two, if no one else does, I still will. G.K. Chesterton said, the object of a new year is not that we should have a new year, but that we should have a new soul. We have a long year ahead, and I'm going to ask each of us to bind our soul to the grace of God, to the reminder that our sins have been forgiven no blame game, no guilt trip. God specializes 
in giving people a fresh start. So I'm going to ask you this morning to bow with me in prayer. Every head is bowed. Every eye is bowed. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.